Hey everyone, ESG Energize is honored to be sponsored by our good friends at mCloud. Their solutions help companies maximize production, automate operations, and optimize predictive maintenance. Their emissions management solution is so relevant right now with the Inflation Reduction Act. Go check out mcloudcorp.com to learn more. Welcome to ESG Energize, where we discuss the latest developments in the environmental, social, and governance arena that are impacting the energy industry today. Here is your host, Delfina Govia. My name is Delfina Govia, and many of you know me as a partner at Veritas Total Solutions, an innovative management consulting firm where I lead the ESG practice alongside my ETRM colleagues. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of ESG Energized. We are changing things up a bit for this episode, and I am extraordinarily excited to have this guest. Normally, I've got CEOs, presidents, vice presidents, directors. Today, I am very privileged to have an author joining us on the show, new to the publishing firmament, Tom Wyrick, author of We Took the Risk. Welcome. Thank so, you so much for having me, Delphine. Tom, We Took the Risk. What's it about? And why, why am I so excited? Yes. I know, exactly. Um, well, We Took the Risk is a, a book about um, the early risk takers in the U.S. renewable energy industry and how they really became a success through, through a variety of traits, right? So it's a, both a compilation of those histories of those individual entrepreneurs, right, that helped define the early days of the industry, plus almost a self-help book of sorts, uh, delineating the traits that really helped define the leadership the success traits, right? in the industry. That, that the allowed them to, exactly. to exactly. forge exactly. the path for us, right? Take the risk, exactly. And take the risk, so, right? Yeah. You are also very deeply involved in the renewable space. And you are, I think, the you oversee marketing for North America at EDP Renewables. Am I correct? So this is also your correct. journey, yeah. your personal yeah. journey. It's also my personal journey, right? And I'm, I'm going to be marking uh, 18 years in the renewable energy industry uh, uh, this year, which is a, a big milestone, right? I was someone who entered the industry in his, uh, in his early 20s, right? And I'm in my mid 40s now. I'm not going to do the math for you all, but uh, you know, in my mid 40s, and it's been yeah. a, a roller coaster ride, right? And uh, you know, and it, it you know really helped spark, I think, so inspiration for what actually got you to first think about writing this book. What drove you to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, very good question. So I'm definitely not a well, writer. You fooled um, me, I'm Tom. Actually, this you know, book always, was uh, fantastic to read. Well, you know. <laughs> Well, as a marketer, right, I always joke that marketing ruined my, my long-form writing, right? I'm good at bylines, ad formats, press releases, you name it, but not long novels. But, um, you know, in all seriousness, what really led me here was actually a, con a convergence of two conversations that happened at the same time. So, um, you know, quite briefly, um, I had a mentor of mine, Lieutenant Colonel Bill Holmberg, who uh, was one of the, the, the 80 most decorated Marines in U.S. history, even to date. Um, and uh, he was a mentor of mine for a number of years uh, working in the biomass and biofuels industry. And in many ways, he's uh, termed the godfather of wow. that industry. And um, he passed away a couple of years ago. 
And, uh, you know, I missed his funeral because of a business trip or something uh, along those lines, you know, not a good excuse. And, you know, during COVID, it had been the third anniversary of his death. And, uh, you know, I owed it, mo- I owed more to him. Um, so I thought, you know what, let me, um, let me write an op-ed about him, about his impact in the industry, so that the future generation of folks coming to the oil and gas industry um, and energy industry know of his contributions, right? Um, so his memory is not lost. And so I started interviewing um, a number of CEOs in the biomass and biofuels industry that were his interns um, during, uh, during his long career. And they, they were coming up with these amazing stories. I'm like, I wish I knew about these stories, right? And, um, you know, someone said to me, you know what, Tom, there's enough here for a book. You should consider writing a book, right, um, about Bill. And I'm like, you know, that's an interesting thing. And, and uh, exactly that day when that suggestion was made, I got a phone call from um, an old professor of mine, Eric Kester at Georgetown University, who had started up a new institute called the Creator Institute, which empowers first-time authors to write books about, quote-unquote, their big idea. So instead of, you know, college kids going out, right, or, or graduate school, business school kids going out and starting startups, he's like, well, write a book about it first and uh, and try to up the probability of your startup succeeding or your big idea succeeding. And so he called me and he had been following me for four years and he kept on every year for the last four years saying, hey, you need to write a book about your experiences from renewables. And I kept on saying, listen, I don't have time. I have a real job. I'm a horrible writer, the whole thing. And he said, no, you really should. And ironically enough, that day when that one CEO said to me, hey, you should write a book, I got a call, no joke, two hours later from Eric Kester again saying, hey, I'm calling you again. You need to write a book. And I, you know, I don't believe in, in fate. I don't believe in consequences. That was Bill Holmberg from above saying, hey, you need to write this book. And so uh, in true Marines fashion, I, you know, I said, okay, got, got the mission. Let me do it. And so that, that's how this all came together, uh, ironically enough. And, uh, you know, and uh, I never looked back. And what I did was I said, well, let me write this not only about Bill, but uh, about many other executives. And so I interviewed about 100 executives uh, over COVID and after COVID. And uh, the tough job was narrowing it down to 25, yeah. which I featured well, in the book. Hats off, because this was a fantastic read. From the second I picked it up, I could not put it down, honestly. And how often can you say that about a nonfiction book? Right. And maybe just because I have a passion for, for the topic, but I don't think so. It just, it really was um, a great book. And I also got to learn more about you through that. And I was struck, one of the things that, that struck mm-hmm. me, and I think that y- you're probably going to say that this helped you in writing the book, was your capacity for introspection as a young man. And to be able to ask yourself questions about traits, like what traits have had served you well, that you could stop and ask yourself that and to say, you know, what mistakes have I learned from? So share with my audience, please, you know, what traits did serve you well? What mistakes did you learn from the, the most compelling ones? And answer that question also from the perspective of the renewables industry, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, very good question. And, and I think for, for many of us, COVID, um, had a lot of silver linings, right? It was definitely a horrible period, you know, from one perspective, right? But another perspective, it brought us really together. And talk about it, a great opportunity to revisit uh, mentors of years past, folks who had made an imprint in my career, right? Talk about, you know, just picking up the phone or doing a quick Teams chat or a Zoom call. Everyone was accessible. They're all home. 
and they were waiting to, to reach out to others. So the timing of writing of this book, I think, really helped aid me in really having that, that time to really reflect back on my career, you know, having come into renewables uh, in the early 2000s, right? This is a kind of a midway point, an inflection point, hopefully yeah. in a longer career in renewables. And it was a, a, a moment to really look back at those traits that I think helped define my career, but also traits that my mentors over the years told me were really were really important traits for success, right? Uh, and especially in the renewables industry, like you said, and the chapters uh, in the second portion of the book actually are um, are titled by traits that each of these executives I interviewed self-identify. You know, it was funny. A lot of people ask me, well, did these uh, executives name specifically the trait that they consider their superpower, right? But actually it came out in all of our uh, conversations, all of my interviews, these executives really named the traits that they felt were important, not only um, from a leadership perspective and, and from a career development perspective, but also from a renewables perspective, right? And I would say there, there are really four traits that um, kept on, I think, playing in my head as I was writing the book, right? One of them was persistence. Um, this was an industry that, um, you know, once you juxtaposition it against um, the investment tax credit roller coasters these industries have been through, right? Or against the the, the climate, uh, the energy climate, and the conversations on the hill, it was not an easy ride, right? And so you had to persist really in pushing through and uh, seeing the long-term value of renewable energy and the potential of renewables, right? Um, you know, another um, another trait that I loved was uh, audacity, uh, which in a lot of ways you have to be audacious. You have to have the big goals. You you know, I, I compare a lot of these startups and entrepreneurs, you know, as as folks like Elon Musk, right? You, you want to build a rocket and go to the moon. Well, you need that first CEO with vision and thrust, right? To thrust the rocket into orbit. Yeah. You then, you know, have an executive team that comes in that maintains orbit, right? Yeah. And then you have the next team that then gets it out of orbit towards the moon, right? So in many ways, you, you have to have that audacious entrepreneur at the beginning of every company's story in order to, to launch that company. And I think that that you know ties in not only to the renewables industry, but obviously the larger energy industry. <clears throat> Excuse me. And another um, trait that I um, really liked a lot was social entrepreneurship, which kind of fit, but didn't fit in a lot of ways because a lot of the titles of the of the you know of the chapters of the traits were self-explanatory. But social entrepreneurship gets you scratching. Like, well, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, right? I I didn't understand um, it at first. So please yeah, explain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so what it is, is basically social entrepreneurship. So social entrepreneurs are just like for-profit entrepreneurs, right? They, however, work in the nonprofit space or in, um, you know, the trade association space. And what they're trying to do is they're in the business of selling concepts, right? And they're selling vision. They're selling market potential, right? And so I uh, featured uh, Mindy Luber, who's the founder of Series, which is up in Boston, who really got a lot of the initial conversations on Wall Street started around renewable energy investments. And this was in a time when ESG was not a big thing. Um, renewables were seen as pet projects, right? You yep. talk about renewables like solar panels on, yep. on satellites, right? And it was not really taken seriously. And um, climate change and the intangible costs, I would say, of carbon, for example, and other climate change indicators were just not valued. And so um, she, as a social entrepreneur, had to socialize the valuation behind these, these uh, indicators, right, and ascribe value to them and sell that concept of, hey, there's not only um, an intrinsic social good that comes out of, um, you know, working on investing in renewables, but also you can make a profit. You can actually book business, and this is actually something that could favorably uh, impact 
the energy market from an economic perspective. So she was in the business of selling that social construct, right? And really promoting entrepreneurship behind that social construct. So yeah, that was the, the another trait. And then, you know, the last one, um, which is a, a ode to Bill Holmberg. And I have to say, if you want to read about Bill, he's in the last chapter, which I thought was fitting. And that's grit. Yeah. You need to have grit. You need to just go out there. It's not going to be pretty. There are times when projects work out. There are projects, uh, times when they don't. But you have to have grit and fortitude and, and continue with your vision despite any setbacks. And I think that's really a testament to all of us today where, you know, we might face a number of setbacks uh, in our businesses, right, given, you know, uh, various uh, factors, X factors, right, like the war in Ukraine was an X factor playing havoc with our energy markets, right? We didn't see that coming. But you have to persevere and have grit and uh, and, and really just bite down and say, we're going to continue with the mission and, and, and finish it out. I think so, yeah, that, those, those were the traits. Yeah. I, I think that the, the book actually comes full circle. And so this is one uh, cautionary or, or advice to folks when they go out and, and buy this book. A lot of people fail to read forwards to books. They just jump right, jump right mm-hmm. into chapter one. But your book comes full circle because you start off with the forward written by uh, Sir Robert Swan, who's one of those larger than life personas that he, he really is. That, you yeah. know, it, in, it's, I think you did you travel with him? Did I gather that? For- I was really lucky. Um, so we did um, a trip to Antarctica together. And uh, I went on a trip with him and 30 other executives to really see the effects of climate change firsthand. So to see the Larson BI shelf, right, that's oh. the size of Rhode Island that's split off from Antarctica, to see that in real life, I mean, the boat took like five hours to go around it. I mean, it oh was just, to see that in real life was amazing. And to have him be there as the narrator, I almost felt like I was in a National Geographic episode, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, we, we hiked, we slept on the ice, we got attacked by first seals at three in the morning in our tents. I mean, I, I had the full adventure, um, but he's amazingly visionary. And I think having him kick this off yeah. in so many ways um, was great. And he actually has a course called Leadership on the Edge, which I encourage all the listeners to tune in on. If you go on YouTube, uh, you'll see a couple episodes, but um, he really does talk about leadership and and what it really takes to unify a team despite all the odds because he's crossed the North Pole, North and South Poles on foot twice, right? And, and that he was the first one to do that. A dedicated was- team to support. He was yeah. the first one to do it. And, and one of the, he just, uh, I think the biggest story from him is he tried to do it again the third time, this time powered by solar energy, only solar energy to, to power and, and, you know, power his satellite communications for his laptop, warm his food, the whole thing. And um, he, I think he dislocated a hip. Oh my. A hundred kilometers before the end. No. <laughs> and he had to be medevaced. But get this, that happened. He left. Two years later, hip replacement surgery, the whole thing, came back and finished the, remain, the remainder of it, right? So I think that's fortitude right there. Oh, and, my gosh. Uh, he, I can imagine him being uh, anybody else setting off, kicking off this book except for him. I mean, uh, talking about being an embodiment of taking a risk, right? Well, you were also really smart by putting that right at the beginning because I just started reading and I couldn't, I couldn't stop. You hooked, me, you hooked me right from the beginning with, with, uh, his, with, with his forward and – he really did embody the point that you're trying to make is that there are traits that actually set apart renewables entrepreneurs. And 100%. I, I think that what is different 
from these stories, from this story of renewables, uh, is, you know, in the oil industry, which everyone knows I'm a 43-year veteran of my beloved oil industry, there's so much written, so many books and movies written about Mm -hmm. all of the grit and persistence and the fortitude and everything else that it took to make this industry so big and powerful. But the difference is that it was not, you don't have the, the societal, uh, component of it. You don't have, it's about, it's profit. You, you use the words profit and societal improvement together at some point in the book. I don't know if you came up with that yourself or if you stole that from somebody. Mm-hmm. But in the oil industry, it was profit and profit and profit and profit is, is the story of our early days. That's what drove people to make the crazy, take the crazy risks that they took. This is a little bit of a different story, right? Totally. totally. And, and, you know, I was a little controversial uh, in the third chapter, right? The title is Renewables is Not for Everybody. Yes, yes. And that, you know, a lot of people are like, whoa. A lot of people without reading the chapter, especially in the renewables industry, like, no, that's the wrong message, you know. And indeed, the message from us in the renewables industry, especially the oil and gas industry, is we're welcoming everybody. Um, I think the skill sets um, between the oil and gas industry and the renewables industry are interchangeable. They are. Um, They're transferable. And, um, you know, we are big believers, and I'm actually a big believer of, we need the oil and gas industry. I mean, we cannot survive. We not get to the next phase of renewables without everybody working together, um, you know, in the same direction. So, um, but yeah, that, that was a chapter. And, and the reason why the primary is that you have to have that, that belief that the work we're doing every day has an impact, right? It does. It's not only the profit, but it's a societal good. And, um, and you have to really believe in it. It's not a talking point, right? A corporate talking point we get in a speech, but rather <laughs> you firmly have to believe it. And, and, and you have to also want to see it in action. Yeah. And I think that's what really defines a lot of those executives in the book who had to pull themselves some of the books bootstraps and uh, go through the hard times. And many of them had startups that failed, but they persisted. And interestingly enough, especially there's a chapter on John Cavalier, who's known as the number one uh, investor behind renewables, right? Who who was notorious for investing and, and getting eight IPOs off the ground uh-huh. um, globally with renewables. He had ventures that failed, yeah. but he had the support of financiers next to him going, listen, I believe in you. I believe in your team. I believe in the vision you bring to the table. Let's go for another round. And, you know, after the second, third try, he started investing and getting good investments through the door. So it's, it is about that persistence and really pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, which today many folks in the oil and gas industry do all the time. So I think there's a similarity there in, in a lot of ways. Well, on, on that note, I, I also wanted to ask you about something that grabbed me as a, a student and a lover of interesting corporate stories and how yeah. businesses make big deals or big decisions, big leaps. And there was one that you highlighted, and that is the story of how EDP got into mm-hmm. the North American renewables market with the Horizon acquisition. And I was absolutely struck by the courage and the agility of the executive team at EDP at the time to make that acquisition happen at the speed that they did. What oh, can you share with what can you share with my listeners uh, about that time and what you learned? I think it's 
was through your your interaction with Miguel Stilwell Dendrade. Is that correct? Yes. So he's our global. He's the global CEO of both EDP um, as well as EDP Renewables. Yeah, it was a fascinating interview, right? Um, a little intimidating because he is my ultimate boss, right? Yeah. Globally. <laughs> but um, a very serious gentleman, but at the same time, very um, I would say very thoughtful in his approach. And yeah, I mean, for EDP, they wanted to and EDP Renewables, they want to enter the U.S. market, right? And this was 2007. Um, they were looking at Horizon Wind, which was a homegrown, by the way, Houston, Texas, homegrown company. Um, it originally, originally, it was Zilka Renewable Energy, uh-huh. um, which was founded by the, the famous Zilka family, you know, the immigrants who came to Texas, who made a name for themselves in energy. They started the first, you know, key wind development shop here in, in, in Houston. Uh, Zilka Renewables then was bought um, by Goldman Sachs and was turned into Horizon Wind. And it was led by a really great team. And I think, you know, to your question, what really attracted EDP first, I think, from from my interview with Miguel was the team. It was belief in the team. It was a strong team. It was a small team. It was about 40 to 50 people. Um, It was led by a gentleman. Exactly. 40 to 50 people. Wow. 40 to 50 people led by uh, an amazing leader named Mike Skelly, who actually has a book all written all about him, just about him. Russell Gold. Uh, wrote a book about him called Superpower a couple years back. Yep, yep. And so Mike Skelly was at the helm of, of Horizon Wind, right? And it was a great team. It was a team that was tight. It was a team that delivered. Um, it was a team that took risks, right? But calculated risks. And we can talk about you know how you calculate risks later or how you determine a calculated risk. But it was the team first that attracted, I think, the company to uh, Horizon. Number two, it was the team's vision. Um, they were small, mighty, but they had a vision of becoming uh, a wind developer that would cover, you know, the majority of the U.S. states, right, and really build out the promise wind has for the country. Um, you know, so that that vision and that sticking to that vision, I think, was another thing that that you know Miguel mentioned that really attracted them. And honestly, I think you know if you put ourselves in his shoes, so he was the, actually the lead for M and A for the deal. Okay. So before now, he's our CEO. Back then, he was actually the guy at the front. And EDP had actually come into the process with Goldman Sachs quite late in the process, right? So they had come in, you know, I think the the um, the paperwork was out there for folks to bid on acquisition sometime in the fall of two, uh, 2006. They came into the conversation around January of 2007, right, towards yeah. the tail end. And I think if I recollect correctly, by March, April, everything was signed and EDP went ahead and acquired um, you know, Horizon and made it, you know, EDP Renewables North America. That quickness and, and swiftness, I think, was um, also Miguel and his team knowing when there was a good opportunity. This was a new market. It was a risky market, right? Because we're talking about the early 2000s. You know, we weren't at the numbers we are today. There were supply chain issues back then, right? There were a lot of other interconnection issues, but it was a growing market and um, they saw potential. So I think that's the third thing, I would say the third reason they uh, quickly jumped on it was just this opportunity to jump into a, what would be a great market that was a fast growing market. So expand a little bit more. You started and um, I want I want to go back to that, talking about calculating risks and assessing yeah. risks. So where did, where were you thinking of going with that thought? You know, Miguel said it really well, and I don't want to give a spoiler, you know, spoiler alert here. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but one of his... One of his best quotes um, in in the chapter, in his chapter about him and the acquisition, he said, you have to go into risks being comfortable 
with whatever happens on either side of the risk. And I thought that was really intuitive, right? Because we go into risk and, you know, you hope for the best, right? But at the same time, I think the lesson in that in that quote was you also have to feel really comfortable with what if this doesn't pan out. Yeah. And I think that that is the perfect definition of a calculated risk. You know, being able to calculate plan A, plan B, and being able to live with yourself on the other side of that and then have, you know, okay, if it does not go this way, what's our what's our counter plan, right? What's plan B going yeah. from there? So I think you have to feel comfortable and, and again, totally riffing off of Miguel's quote there, but <laughs> you have to be comfortable with, you know, understanding that it will not pan out potentially and that you have to be in your, you have to be comfortable in your skin with that. So I would say that's a calculated risk. I mean, also with calculated risks, you know, um, you have to rely on your team. I think that's another theme that came out of this book is you surround yourselves by the best people and you have to trust them that they're going to give you the best analysis, the best forecasting, the best modeling possible out there to, um, you know, assess, is this a risk to take? And you have to rely on that. And you have to have a really deep faith in your team members in, in providing that information. So I think that's also something that is um, quite, um, you know, when you look at calculating a risk, right, it's something that you have to factor in when, when you do so, in, you know, in your day-to-day work. Very well said. I've, I've often said that high-performing teams are woven together by trust. 100%. Yeah. So, so let me switch gears just a little bit and get back okay. to your, your marketing uh, responsibilities. I pulled out something that you wrote in the book that said, unlike traditional marketing, we renewables marketers are challenged to weave ESG benefits into everything we market and to push the boundaries of what our teams can deliver. What do you mean by exactly. that? Exactly. What do you mean by that? <clears throat> no, good question. And you know, it's again a controversial statement, and I know uh, you know it's funny. I know when people read the book, especially on my team, because when they get to that chapter, they're like, "Oh, they, we want to ask you about something you know, about that." So that's my that's my way of testing the team. But what I meant by that was that you know, um, we as marketers, right, as communicators, are there to market a product or service, right? And uh, and usually traditional marketing says, you know, you're given you're given the product, right? You then have to f- figure out how to spin it. You then have to figure out, you know, what your customers' needs are, assess how this product fits the customers' needs or solves, you know, their situation, their problems, right? And then market it out to those customer platforms, right, where the customers are located. Right. My counter is, especially in renewable energy, we actually serve as a reality check to our team. So before you step out to the market and assess what your customers need, you actually in renewables now in these days, given ESG and corporate, uh, you know, corporate social responsibility goals, actually take the product, you assess it against the ESG values and commitments we've made as a company. And actually what we do is we push sometimes back to our team and go, listen, this isn't fully baked. You know, what about this? Like, for example, what about recycling of components of renewables uh, uh, projects, right? Yeah. What about environmental impacts of the communities that we're servicing, right? So, you know, for us marketers, I feel like we in, in many ways advocate for the landowners, the off takers, the customers we service internally by going back to our teams and saying, hey, before we go out there, have you thought about X, Y, and Z? Yeah. And how do we really, um, you know, strengthen that offering to market? And I feel that ESG, even though ESG is a murky space, right? Because we're still trying to figure out how do you measure ESG? 
what are the appropriate accreditation uh, organizations that can validate those those uh, those that analysis right or those rankings but i feel like you know right now on the honor system you know we, we have that ability to go back to our teams and really challenge them and go hey we really need to do better um you know we can't go out to market without uh, really making this the best product can be so that, that was the point that i'm making there and it really does change i think the way people view marketers you know yeah. marketing communications in many ways are seen as an overhead and i think my personal life goal is to turn that around and show that no actually marketers are a, a viable and integral part of a, a business development operation wherever it's located ah well i i, I would love to see you be successful in making that part of every everybody's everyday thinking in the business world. Well, we can join together, Delphina, and we can make it happen. <laughs> we can make it happen. 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 So, all right, let's let's start to wrap this up with the most the most important question right now today. What is our next challenge? What what oh are gosh, the new? Yeah. What are the next next risks that we will need to take to move ourselves forward in the renewable space? Definitely. Um, you know, this whole book is really a call to action. Okay. And it is, and it's a very simple call to action, which is, you know, in an industry and in, in a world where we're to, being told to be risk aversive or mitigate risk in our daily yeah. work streams, right? My, my actually call is, no, we need to take the risk. We need to take it again in order to evolve to this, this next evolutionary phase of the renewables industry and quite frankly, the next uh, phase of the energy industry in general. Um, and I would say, you know, there's, there's basically four challenges that I see. Um, and this is not only endemic for renewables, right, but for the oil and gas industry and the energy industry in general. You know, one obviously is uh, the supply chain disruptions. Yes. We're all faced by them. We, yep. we are, we, no one's an island to themselves. And that's due to, you know, COVID, that's due to, to, you know, many other factors, the war in Ukraine, you name it. But we do need to figure out how do we get past these supply chain bottlenecks. And, and also in doing so, you know, there's an opportunity here. And we actually saw the news today, right, with Hanwha Q-Cells announcing uh, a couple billion dollar investment in a factory for the entire supply, solar supply chain to be made in Georgia. Oh, my. So, um, you know, there's an opportunity here to, you know, get back to built in USA products, right? And, and uh, really assess how we get the supply chain back. Now, that's great about the news today. That's something that will probably impact us three, four years down the road. So what do we do in the interim, right? So I think we, we have to be strategic in how we source from, um, from countries, right, where there's uh, stable uh, regimes, right, and uh, that are good business partners that could deliver on products that we can trust that are, that are quality made, right, primarily Southeast Asia, for example. Um, I would say the other um, big um, big area that that's a challenge that we need to take a risk on is oh is um, on the regulatory side, right? We have folks on interconnection and queues out the door in local municipalities and local counties, right? And we're not being quick enough in helping folks interconnect their projects. So we could build as many renewables projects as we can, but if we have the inability to interconnect them then we're, we're, you know, up the river, right? So working with local governments and figuring out how do we get past all the, a lot of the bureaucratic red tape and uh, interconnect site and permit projects more quickly. Um, so that's that's the second area. Third one is workforce, right? Uh, yeah. I think everybody, no matter what industry you're in today, is, is facing a workforce shortage, right? Yeah. 
And uh, we need to invest smartly in the development of the future workforce and the workforce of today. So I think that there's two things we need to do and we need to take a risk on white. One is obviously focusing on STEM education earlier on. Yep. Uh, promotion of vocational schools and training schools and technician schools earlier on in high school and middle school, right? So yep. I'm a big proponent of that. And you know what? We have no time to waste. We have to start now because those folks will be coming out of school in the next 5, 10, 12 years, 15 years, right? And we'll need to jump on them. And they'll solve our future, uh, the future crisis, workforce crisis we're going to face if we don't do something, right? The second area where we can definitely do uh, good is workforce development and taking folks that, let's say, are displaced from uh, the coal industry and retraining them to focus on new industries, right? And that could be renewables, natural gas, you name it. But really invest in those people and in those communities because, you know, when you look at a project um, and you're developing a project, there's great opportunity there to train people who will help an O&M for the next 30, 40, 50 years around that project. Also, you know, my biggest belief, and someone said to me this the other day, no matter what kind of energy project you're building, if the community around the project doesn't see their future in that project, you've lost them day one. Yeah. So, you know, how do you really get that community to feel ownership and, and pride in that project, right? You invest in them. Um, so it, it's so true. It was most like a light bulb moment when one of our community relations folks told me that in the office the other day. Um, so, you know, that I would say that's the biggest challenge, the third biggest challenge we have. And, uh, you know, at the same time, an opportunity. And again, it takes, you just have to take a risk. I think companies have to take the risk and say, okay, well, we're going to set aside money to set up technician centers. We're going to set aside money to partner with nonprofits. Let's really invest in in the future of uh, the energy sector. And let's do it today because there's no time to waste. And the fourth challenge? You know, I'd say the fourth challenge is um, in in many ways, um, it is the transmission and the transmission grid of the mm-hmm. future, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we we missed a gigantic opportunity in the IRA. No matter where you fall on supporting it or or not being supportive of it, if we purely focus on the energy um, segment of the IRA and the benefits it's giving, we lost a big opportunity to do a tax credit for transmission build-out. Ah. Uh, and this is something which I was like, oh, come on. Of all the things that could have included, they should have included that. And that's something that would benefit all forms of energy, Right. But again, we're not we're, we're we're kind of treating the symptoms and not the roots of the problem. Yeah, and we need to invest in a better grid in this country um, and in better transmission lines and better access to those transmission lines. And I feel ultimately, if we did that, we achieve our energy goals. We achieve being an energy net exporter, right? Um, and we would also achieve bring money to communities that really need it, um, that could serve as future hubs or future energy production centers, right? So. That's the fourth, and that's the big one. I left the big one towards the end. <laughs> for last, that's, right? That's it. For last. That's the big one. But that's that's one where uh, I, I, I lay awake at night sometimes thinking about that, going, yeah. what a lost opportunity. But you never know. I mean, maybe, uh, you know, I'm always hopeful maybe uh, policymakers in Washington will revisit this in the future and, uh, and you know, try to see if we can get some task credits for transmission build-out. Well, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. One, one can be hopeful, right? Can, I, you know, these days with Washington, you never know. It's a mixed bag, but you can be hopeful. Yeah. Well, Tom, uh, what a fantastic pleasure to to have you on this show to share your insights from this book. For our readers, uh, if they want to access additional information, can we put in the show notes access to uh, a website for the book? 
Yeah, definitely. So it's uh, www.wetooktherisk.com, all one word. Okay. Um, I have my blog there. You can read about my writing journey and my continued journey. I'm going to be actually coming out with an audiobook later this spring. Oh, wow. So for those of you that are uh, audiobook fans, that's going to be coming out. Is but it if you'd the like audio version up, of this book? Yeah, audio version of this book. Yep. Okay, so, so I have out. to interject here, Tom. I <laughs> do not recommend listening to this book on audio, nor do I recommend downloading it to a device because this is yep. a book where you absolutely stop and take notes. It's, uh, I was frustrated because I had downloaded it on a device and I wound up having to grab a piece of paper and make notes on pages and what have you. This is one of those books where you really do want to go back, refer to things, lessons. There's so many lessons in every single one of the chapter for 25 people that you, that you hone down learning from every one of these, the history, the stories. Um, yeah. So that's all my personal recommendation to our listeners, but yeah. So can, no, it's true. And especially the resources (laughs) section in the back, right? So I I did, more about that resources section where the like the cult I call it the cult classics of books you want to read yeah. in the energy industry, right? So that was something that I've been mentoring a couple of students, and they always asking, "Hey Tom, what are the books you recommend in the market to read?" So I include about oh gosh, thirty books I think in that section, and uh, yeah, it's one of those books that you want to have by your desk, and you just want to you know we call it pup, you know dog ears, it, dog, you know, ears dog ear yeah. it, highlight it, write in it. But that was the purpose was to have this be a resource for anybody. And also have it be as an inspiration tool for those of us who have been in this industry a long time. You know, Delfina, you've been an industry classic, you know, for, for the last 40 years. Yeah. It's good to look back sometimes, right? It really this is. this book gave us a great opportunity to do it. Yeah. 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 And just so that you know, I'm warning anyone that comes to work for me in the future, I am now going to make you read this book. So my go-to book <laughs> in the past, anybody that came to work for me, I used to make them read Jurgen's The Prize. Yeah. So now... Anybody that comes to work for me, you're going to be reading this book. This is the one that I'm going to stick in your face and say, "Hey, you got this is this is it." Perfect. So, thank well, you. and I definitely encourage encourage your readers also um, to that point. Um, you know, I am a big fan of independent bookstores. I believe uh, they're the yes. cornerstones of society. And um, when you go to the website, you know, a lot of you go to Amazon. Obviously, Amazon can knock out the book in two days and send it to you. Um, Barnes and Noble can do the same thing, but do support the independent bookstores. I partnered with about 10 independent bookstores across the country. For those of you here in Houston and Texas, Blue Willow. Yes, I'm uh, familiar. Which is a phenomenal store. It is, is carrying the book. Please support them. Um, if you're in New York City, The Strand is carrying the book, which is, you know, Powell's in Portland is carrying the book and many other places. So do I, I do encourage your readers and, and your listeners to, um, to really buy for independent bookstores. It helps uh, local communities a lot. Well, let's, let's do that, everybody. Listeners, go out there, support your local bookstores, and absolutely read this book. Tom Wyrick, thank you, thank you, thank you. This was a sincere pleasure. The pleasure was all mine, Delfina, and uh, thank you so much for uh, you know taking the risk with me and having this conversation today. <laughs> Great. Thanks. Join us again next week on the ESG Energized Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. 